I wonder if you've ever found yourself with a really important job or task that you thought you weren't ready for, or uh, before you started you thought you were ready, but now that you're doing it, the enormity of the situation is kind of uh, meaning your confidence is fading fast. Let me tell you a story. A man about five and a half years ago started a job in a church. Feeling ready, he quickly became overwhelmed uh, and sought lots of advice from lots of people. Uh, my neighbouring rector up the road, uh, the bishop and others. It wasn't the first time this had happened to me though. It was a similar feeling uh, one year into my life as an ordained minister when uh, my then uh, rector said, I'm leaving, and the bishops decided you're going to run the parish uh, until we get a new boss. And so for a year, uh, there I was. So Andrea, I might disappear in like five months and then it's all on you. Again, I sought the advice of others more experienced and wiser because I was out of my depth. It's always helpful, isn't it, to get some help and some advice and some guidance when we're entrusted with an important job. And that's what we have with Paul's letters to both Timothy and Titus, which we're looking at. These are uh, what are collectively known as the pastoral epistles. And they're letters that Paul is writing to his understudies as they seek to do the important work of continuing on what he has done, which is start these churches, seeing them uh, begin, and now uh, to his understudies, he says, go and keep on doing this good work of, of seeing the church stay true to the gospel and growing disciples of Jesus. And uh, these three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, they're kind of like a set. Uh, they're, they're different to Paul's other letters, like, you know, remember we looked at Romans recently, uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. These are letters Paul writes to, to the churches in cities. They're, they're letters that are to uh, the whole church. Uh, this is Paul's letter to specific individuals. It'd be like the difference between writing Paul writing the letter to the church in Lindisfarne and Paul writing the letter to Chris, the minister there. Uh, it, it changes the, the tone, the style, uh, and even some of the, 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 the logic of, of how Paul writes. They're more personal and they have instructions for how the leaders are to go about ordering the life of the church. And we'll come back and have a look sometime next year, I think, at the first two, 1 and 2 Timothy. But for now, we're going to have a look at this short letter called Titus. And after we finish that, we'll look at this other letter, which is slightly different, but still another personal letter that Paul wrote, the letter to Philemon. But we'll come to that in a few weeks' time. We see uh, Paul, the author, he identifies himself Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An important identifier right at the top. He identifies himself in two key ways, doesn't he? Servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, the word servant is literally the word slave. So it would read better if it said, Paul, a slave of God, 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, Paul conceives of his identity as being one in which he has been completely and utterly captivated and taken control over his life by God. It's no longer his life that he's trying to live out his grand purposes for. God owns him completely and wholly. And because of that, he has great authority. God has taken control of him and given him great authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's not a self-serving authority. It's an authority he has as a slave that he can use only as he seeks to serve the people of God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we see the, the purpose of this ownership by God and this position that Paul is given next don't we as he continues verse one sort of the second bit to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our saviour Paul's job as God's slave with spiritual authority over the church, is to grow their faith in their knowledge and in their way of life. Or as uh, one uh, excellent pastor and scholar, John Stott, puts it, in their doctrine and duty. You can tell that man preached a lot of sermons because he manages to boil things down to start with the same letter. Doctrine and duty. And we see, as the uh, book unfolds, if you go home and read Titus, you can look for this. Chapter 1, which we're looking at today, it's talking about doctrine and duty, so the way Christians think and the way they act uh, in the church. Then if you look at chapter 2, it's sort of focused around the home, and in chapter 3, in the way they interact in the world. So... That's Paul, he's, he's got this job as God's slave and apostle and the apostle of Jesus Christ to help the church have right thinking and right behaviour, right doctrine, right duty. And he's written this letter to this bloke called Titus. To Titus, verse 4, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from the God and Father and, and Christ Jesus our Saviour. So who's Titus? Well, Uh, he appears a couple of times in the New Testament. We see him in Galatians chapter 2, where uh, Paul is recounting some of the difficulties the church was having as it expanded from a Jewish sect to Gentile, uh, uh, including the Gentiles. Uh, And there in chapter 2, verse 3, we see Paul say this, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. And I won't bore you with the full context of Galatians chapter 2, but if you read that and you read Acts 15, you'll get some idea of the context of what's going on in that moment. But what we see here, which is useful for us, is that Titus is a Greek convert. That is, he's not a Jew, he's come from the, uh, the, the general population, as it were. So he's, he's, a, he's a new convert to the faith at some point, but he's one who's travelled along with Paul and started to grow in uh, godliness so that he can now be this leader. 
And we read in, in uh, 2 Corinthians that uh, Paul sends Titus uh, to Corinth at some point uh, and Titus is involved in the collection of money that uh, the church in Corinth does for the church in Jerusalem. So, again, I won't, uh, we'd be here all day if I went, went through all the references, but you had a look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 7 and chapter 8, you see Titus come up a couple of times there. Now, we also know that Titus has now found himself in Crete. Uh, that's where he is now and that's where this letter has been written to. And so that begs the question, okay, so we've got Titus, this Greek convert, he's hung out with Paul, he's grown in leadership, he's done some stuff for Paul a couple of times, we see that in the New Testament. Uh, what, what association does Paul have with the church in Crete? Uh, and the only time we see Paul there is in Acts 27, where as he's sailing off to Rome, not like on a cruise, uh, but in jail, um, he, his boat spends some time there. And uh, it sort of seems, uh, if you read Acts 27, uh, it comes in and out of crate a couple of times because they're waiting for the winds to, to, to get right. And so it's possible, and we presume that at some point as they've come in to one of these bays, uh, Paul has spent some time there, not a lot of time, but enough time to either meet the Christians who were already there and help them, or he's actually converted someone while he's there, and now uh, somehow Titus has ended up there under Paul's instruction to help the church grow. So it's a book written to Titus on the island of Crete. Anyone been there? Anyone been to Crete? Hey, there we go. Uh, talk to Andrea if you want uh, to know about Crete. I don't know anything about it. I don't even know if the beach I put on the graphic is Crete itself, but the word was written on a beach. So I thought that's good enough. It's written to Titus and it's written uh, to him in this, on this island uh, as he seeks to look after the churches. But it's not just for Titus. You see, uh, if you skip right to the end of the book, uh, Paul finishes with, everyone with me sends your greetings, Titus 3.15, greet those who love us in the face, <coughs> faith, excuse me, grace be with you all. Which I think tells us that though this is Paul's personal letter to Titus, uh, which has specific instructions for him as a leader, he's a leader who is also accountable to the, the church, the body of Christ. The letter was to be read publicly so people knew the kinds of things that Titus was supposed to do as the Apostle Paul had instructed him. Leadership doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens uh, in, a, in a context and in a, amongst a people and leaders are accountable to their people uh, in as much as the people hold them accountable to the word of God. So it's important that we do that to our leaders too, aka it's important that you do that to me. In our chapter today, Paul's instruction concerns doctrine and duty or right thinking and, and right living in the life of the church. And it starts, we see, 
with leaders. Have a look in verses 5 to 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempted, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sometimes I read those and I think, what am I doing up here? Uh, the pressure is on. These overlap with Paul's instructions that he gives in 1 Timothy uh, 3 about uh, elders and overseers too. I just want to take a, a very quick moment to just reflect on the two uh, words that Paul uses here to describe leaders. <coughs> he uses elder uh, starting in uh, verse 5 and then in verse 7 he flips to overseer. Elder in the Greek is the word presbyter which we sometimes also turn into the word priest and uh, overseer is the word episkopos which episcopal uh, we sometimes turn into the word bishop. Now, I don't think that Paul has in mind the Anglican Church when he uses the word presbyter and episkopos, elders and bishops, uh, and that he was thinking about there's, there, there are people like Richard Condy in the world and there are people like Chris Bowditch in the world and Andrea in the world and uh, the, the, these are the different sorts of roles that we have for them uh, in uh, the church which will be called Anglican. We have deacons, priests or presbyters and bishops and that sort of way of doing church is, is really only traceable back to the second century. So it is an early invention. And I want to say that just because the church organises itself in a way that's different to the way Paul said, doesn't make it good or doesn't make it bad. We don't need to stress out about this. We don't need to find our way of doing church necessarily in the, uh, the, the life uh, of Paul and the scriptures. This is the church in its infancy beginning to figure out what it looks like to order itself and to have leaders who are godly. That's what we're looking for here. There's no instructions in Titus for how to have an annual meeting. But we need to have them because they're, they're good governance things to do in, in the world in which we live. We need to be a godly organisation and we can detect uh, ways that we ought to go about things from these letters. It seems likely that there were churches in the multiple different towns in Crete and Paul is telling Titus that he needs to appoint elders and overseers, by which I think he doesn't mean two different types of people. Uh, I think he just means leaders, and he uses two different words. He, Paul needs Titus to appoint multiple leaders to the church who are of godly character and godly belief. They have right doctrine and right duty. It takes a team to lead a church. And right after this service finishes, we're going to elect 
a team to help our church continue to do the things God is calling us to do. And it's important that we take that seriously and that we elect the kinds of people who we think are on about trying to live out their faith correctly and who are trying to live the kind of lives that are empowered by the Holy Spirit and bring glory to God. Right thinking, right behaviour. But it's not just our parish council. We have all sorts of different people in our church who do the work of ministry to, to help us grow. Small group leaders, LA kids leaders, playgroup helpers, music team leaders, each of these have responsibility for passing on the faith and modelling the faith, which is, I think, what Paul's driving at here. Choose elders who can model the kind of life that Christians are called to live, seeking to understand their faith better and live it out more fully. And it's a full-on list. I take it seriously. And I don't always get it right. And nor will you if you're elected to parish council or appointed to LA Kids Leadership or whatever it might be. Which is why I think Paul finishes his list with the grace of the gospel. 1 Titus 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's like, here's some examples of things you can look for in the life of a leader that might show you that they're the kind of person who understands the grace of God in their life, the way they organise their house, the kind of person they are, uh, these sorts of things are fruits that you can look for, but what matters most is that they hold on to the gospel. They hold on to the good news about Jesus and they model repentance and faith. Of course, leaders sometimes stuff up big and they can't be leaders anymore or for some time. But all of us are called to hold on to the truth of the gospel, that none of us live up to God's standards and all of us need to trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for our salvation and nothing else. And as we hold on to that, we then must go about the work of opposing false teaching. That's why we need to be people who hold on to the gospel and who live it out so that we can oppose those who stand against the gospel, not as hypocrites, but as people who hold dearly to the truth of God. There are many rebellious people, Paul says to Titus, verse 10, full of meaningless talk and deception. They must be silenced. And he goes on through to verse 16. They, know, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. There are heaps of people out there who are rebellious, who are corrupt, who deny Jesus, who do it with wrong talk, wrong doctrine, who do it with wrong living, uh, bad duty. And it's clear as you read verses 10 through 16 that Paul obviously has in mind some particular subsection of the Cretan church 
It seems they're most likely of a, of, of a Jewish background, although there's obviously people who are natives to Crete as well. That's why he quotes the proverb and applies it to them. They're peddling a false teaching and a false way of living as a result. And we're not immune from that. If you've opened the papers just in the last two weeks, you'll see that the Anglican Church of Australia is dealing with its own false teaching. People who claim to know God, who may even hold titles like bishop or archbishop, but by their doctrine and teaching, they are living in a way that encourage others to live in rebellion to God. They are full of meaningless talk and deception. And it's right that people like our bishop oppose them. So that the church will get on with being about good doctrine and right living. It's important that we as leaders know the gospel the truth of Jesus Christ and that we live our lives shaped by it. And it's important that our leaders do that because our leaders are an example for all of us. And just because you're not a leader, you sit need to go, why are we reading this book about Titus and leaders? I'm not a leader. Well, maybe that is the case. But that doesn't mean you're excused from the same kind of goal of seeking to live your life more like Jesus and getting to know God better. The list, if you will, if you think, it, it, it's still aspirational for you, even if you're not a leader. It's the kind of life, a gospel-shaped life that all of us can aspire to and that hopefully the leaders in our church model. And it's an encouragement for us to be people who get our doctrine right, who are regular in the word, in the scriptures, who are regular as we read them in repentance and asking for God's help to transform us and to change us. And this leads to right living. All of us, regardless of our position, would be well served by sitting with those lists of characteristics in verses 6 through 9 and reflecting on how we're going in those areas and asking for God to show us where we might be able to grow and change. And likewise, all of us would do well to sit with verses 10 to 16 and ask for God to show us any areas where we may need to repent. As we've talked about all of this, I think it's just important that we remember how Paul opened, that he is writing as God's slave and God's apostle to God's elect. That is, as God's people sitting here today in Lindisfarne and as God's people sitting under Titus's leadership on the island of Crete, they were called to get their doctrine right and to get their duty right, not to earn the favour of God, not to maintain their status in the church, but to do this because God had chosen them 
to be a witness to his glory. God has chosen us too for that. We sit here not by any merit on our own, but only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And we stay here in the church, not these four walls, but the God's church, only by the grace of God, because he's chosen us and he's called us. It's okay when you realise you've got something wrong or you've fallen short of God's standards. That doesn't mean you're outside the kingdom of God. You're still one of God's elect. You're still safe and secure in God's arms through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's okay. It's why we're a people of repentance and faith because we know that this whole thing isn't about earning salvation but receiving it from God. Whatever you've done, good or bad, you're safe and secure as God's elect in his loving arms. He's bought you with a price. You too can identify yourself like Paul as God's slave. He's taken control of you and he's calling you to understand him better and to live out your life as one of his disciples. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter to Titus. We thank you for all that it teaches us about understanding you better and seeking to live our lives uh, as people under leadership. Lord, we pray for our leaders that they would model to us uh, right doctrine and right behaviour, right duty. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as we reflect on our lives to be shaped completely by the gospel and that as our hearts are transformed by your power that we might seek to live out the good news in all aspects and areas of our life. Lord, continue to help us as a church and as we head into our annual meeting after this service today, help us to be seeking uh, uh, to uh, elect people and to choose people who model this sort of behaviour, gospel-centred living, and help each of us as we reflect on our lives to do the same. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.